Welcome to On The Soul's Terms podcast. I'm your host, Chris Skidmore. And today we'll be looking at the story of the Frog King from the Brothers Grimm collection. But before we begin, I invite you to think about what you know at this moment about the story, also known as the Frog Prince. What do you remember about the meeting of the frog and the princess? How does the frog transform into the prince? I ask these questions because this is a story that we all know on some level. It'll bring back a memory. And so I want to invite you just to sit with that for a moment and think about the version of the story that you know. As you listen to this version, published in Germany in 1812, you might be surprised at how the tension of opposites resolves itself. I'm also releasing this episode on August 11th, 2022, just in time for the full moon in Aquarius, which will be on August the 12th at 1.35 a.m. London time, so GMT. The characters involved in this moon are the sun in Leo, representing the light of the individual, creativity, courage, and coming from the heart. And the sun is in opposition to Saturn in Aquarius. Our responsibilities to the tribe or the collective, the ideas and paradigms in which the individual operates, the rules and laws of the land, the consensus reality. So I feel that whenever we find an opposition in the sky, we find a tension between the two archetypal forms. So imagine this, uh, this individual in tension with consensus reality um, and the laws of the land. At 90 degrees to these two is Uranus, the meta trickster in the sky intent on disruption of the norms, radical, revolutionary, desiring of freedom, from the shackles of old ideas. Now in our story, the princess begins with a golden ball, showing her allegiance with the sun. The king insists on the rules of the land, aligning himself with Saturn, and the rebellious, disruptive energy of Uranus takes place as a verb rather than a noun, but definitely involves our amphibian trickster frog dancing between worlds. If you're enjoying the show but just don't know how to show your appreciation, why not head to patreon.com forward slash on the souls terms and become a patron for only $6 a month to help me bring these episodes from the deep well into the light of day. Welcome to On the Souls Terms, a podcast exploring psychology, astrology, mythology. In old times, when wishing still helped one, there lived a king whose daughters were all beautiful. But the youngest was so beautiful that the sun itself, which had seen so much, was astonished whenever it shone in her face. Close by the king's castle lay a great dark forest, and under an old lime tree in the forest was a well. And when the day was very warm, the king's child went out into the forest and sat down by the side of the cool fountain. And when she was bored, she took a golden ball, 
and threw it up on high and caught it. And this ball was her favorite plaything. Now it so happened that on one occasion the princess's golden ball did not fall into the little hand which she was holding up for it, but on to the ground beyond and rolled straight into the water. The king's daughter followed it with her eyes, but it vanished, and the well was deep, so deep that the bottom could not be seen. At this she began to cry, and cried louder and louder, and could not be comforted. This is the beginning of the story of the Frog King, or Iron Henry, and it's the first story in the Grimm Brothers collection. And no matter which collection that you open, or which edition that you're in, the first will always be the Frog King, or Iron Henry. And that's just an indication of how much the Grimm Brothers loved this particular story. It was one very close to their hearts, one they were clearly very fond of. And... I can understand why, because it's so rich in imagery, even in the first two paragraphs, we just have so much going on, so much to ponder, <clears throat> so much to contemplate. A good way to begin looking at a fairy tale is to get a sense of where we are, because that gives a sense of the the ground that we're on, or the, the part of soul that we're in. In astrology, that might be the house, the house system which is like which part of reality are we in. The houses in astrology can be your career or your work, your home life, your relationships, your money, your community. These are houses. And in the same way, a fairy tale always has a certain house or a certain realm that we're in. And in the example of the Frog King, we are in a dark forest, it's just beyond the castle. So it's close by the king's castle, but it's not. It's no longer in the king's realm. And the dark forest is something that's used in many, many fairy tales all throughout history and all, through, all different kinds of cultures use this dark forest. The rules of reality are different there than other places. And uh, it's different than the courtyard and it's different than the civilized world. And so we have this distinction in fairy tales between the civilized world and the dark forest. The dark forest takes us almost back in time and uh, out of civilization. And in the dark forest, all sorts of strange things can and usually do happen. And there often is something like a talking animal or, um, or some kind of challenge. Often you'll meet the devil there or you'll meet uh, a witch or the Baba Yaga or... You know, it's a it's a place where we tend to feel perhaps a little lost and not in our usual flow or in our usual state of consciousness. So when we take this into the psyche, we've already left the regular consciousness world or consensus reality, and we're now, in a sense, in the world in the world of soul. And it's interesting the characters that we have because the first character mentioned in the story is in fact the king. We haven't met the king in the story yet. But the line goes, in old times when wishing still helped one, and, and what a beautiful, profound way to begin the collection of stories from, from the Grimm brothers. In old times when wishing still helped one, and, and I think we can remember those times. It sort of automatically takes us back into childhood or maybe back into the ancient past or back throughout history 
we're leaving behind our current everyday world and it's a prompt to get us into the faraway world. It's kind of like at the start of Star Wars when it's a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. It just wants us, it's a prompt to get us out of our, our uh, regular consciousness. And then it says there lived a king. So this story, therefore, is about the king. It's the first one to be mentioned, and we hear about the king and the king's daughters. So there's several daughters. We don't know how many, but we know they were all beautiful. We don't hear about a queen, and we don't hear about any sons. We just hear about the relationship between a king and his daughters. And they were beautiful daughters, but they were very much the king's daughters. So our youngest princess, princess here, um, right from the beginning, isn't necessarily her own her own self she has an identity only in relationship to the king i think that's a really important part of this story as we as we set out on its journey and then we have this beautiful image that shows up in a few fairy tales iron john is another one where the youngest boy has a golden ball and is playing with the golden ball and it rolls into the wild man's cage it's an image i go back to again and again in this case, we have the youngest princess, the king's youngest daughter, and she's playing with a golden ball too. She's throwing it up and it's coming back to her hand. She's throwing it up and it's coming back. And we know that it's her favorite plaything. Now, this is a, is a symbol of that abandon, that kind of like... It's a symbol of a, a, a time in our development where there's really nothing to worry about when, um, when we don't have to, we don't have responsibility, we don't have um, anything to concern us. And we just, all we really need to do is play like the child would play. And our hope for any living being really is they get as much time in that phase of existence as possible right like as much time as they can to just enjoy the wholeness and completeness of that and the golden ball is a symbol of that it's obviously it springs to mind the golden ball the sun itself and uh, uh the sun being a golden ball in the sky there and so a contemplation of the ball itself and we know of the sun that it sets every day and then it rises every day and there's a bit of faith there in the dark of the night that, that the sun will come back, that the sun will rise again. And many, many gods um, in ancient times were sun gods. You know, Apollo being the classic sun god who has this sense of the eternal within him. And that's what we see with the symbol of the sun, the sense of the eternal or the life-giving, or the life-renewing energy. Uh, many sun gods, such as Dionysus, and Asclepius, and Jesus Christ, uh, they die, and then they come back to life. So there's a renewal energy when it comes to the golden light, and the golden ball, and the sun. So, in a sense, astrologically, um, that leads us into Leo energy. Leo is the sign of the lion, and it is ruled by the sun. In that sense, it is this larger-than-life kind of energy. So the rulership of the sun, the fire, a fixed fire, that's what Leo is. It's a fixed fire, just like our sun in the sky. And Leo is an interesting dichotomy because it it is king energy, but it's also symbolic of the child. So we have this interesting dichotomy even within 
uh, Leo itself, that it rules child, children, childhood, playfulness, uh, but also leadership and strength and truth speaking and uh, standing up for what what one believes in and uh, standing in that leadership role and holding court in a way. You know Leo, the lion, king of the jungle, we're thinking about that particular kind of energy. And the start of our story, our princess is in this perfect union with that golden ball. And then she's holding out her hand, but the ball doesn't fall there and doesn't fall into her hand. And it it lands on the ground and it rolls away and it goes into the water. And we're told that this well that it goes into was so deep that the bottom could not be seen. And at this point, she starts to cry and cries louder and louder. And she could not be comforted. This is the story of the loss of innocence. And this really does happen in everybody's life at some point because, you know, we can't be children all of our lives and there's a whole journey to go on in life and a whole process of maturity and many phases to life and all these things that we have to go through. But at some point, there is some kind of a loss of innocence. This could be all manner of things that happen in one's life and it doesn't have to be big and tragic, although sometimes... It is big and tragic. But for the most part, we're talking about this moment when, when that lust for life and that joy and that playfulness and that connection to our essence and connection to, in a way, our godliness. You know, this is the narcissistic phase of development where we feel we are godlike, we are demigods, and something happens to knock us off that and to take us down. And at that point, the sun goes into the well, so we get the sense in a dark forest it's now very dark and... The well itself is very deep, and this is the direction of soul down the well. If we make that distinction between spirit, which takes us up and away, takes us up into the sky, it takes us up into higher states of consciousness, whatever it is, it's got to go up when it comes to spirit. You know, that, that view from the mountaintop where we can see everything so clearly, that's the path of spirit. It's symbolized by fire and air. It's transcendence. Right? It's going above and beyond and transcending. It's the, it's the path of enlightenment. And the other path, the equal opposite path, is the path of soul. And the path of soul is earth and water, and it takes us down. It takes us down that well into the water. It, it takes us into the deep, into the to depth processes. It's, it's the realm of depth psychology. It takes us into this mythic land and into symbols and out into that dark forest in a way right it takes us it takes us away from the consciousness of that kingdom and and into that dark damp place like the forest and that's where we find ourselves and we go back to the story and as she thus lamented someone said to her what ails you king's daughter your tears would melt a heart of stone and she looked around to the side from where the voice came, and saw a frog stretching forth its thick, ugly head from the water. Ah, old water splasher, is it you? she said. I'm weeping for my golden ball, which has fallen into the well. Be quiet and do not weep, answered the frog. I can help you, but what will you give me if I bring your plaything up again? Whatever you will have, dear frog, said she. My clothes, my pearls and jewels, and even the golden crown which I am wearing. The frog answered, I do not care for your clothes, your pearls and jewels, or your golden crown. 
But if you will love me, and let me be your companion and playmate, and sit by you at your little table, and eat off your little golden plate, and drink out of your little cup, and sleep in your little bed, if you will promise me this, I will go down below, and bring you your golden ball up again. Oh yes, said she, I promise you all you wish, if you will but bring me my ball back again. She, however, thought, how the silly frog does talk. He lives in the water with the other frogs and croaks, and can be no companion to any human being. But the frog, when he had received this promise, put his head into the water, and sank down, and in a short while came swimming up again with the ball in his mouth, and threw it on the grass. The king's daughter was delighted to see her pretty plaything once more, and picked it up and ran away with it. Wait, wait, said the frog, take me with you, I can't run as you can. But what did it avail him to scream his croak, croak after her, as loudly as he could? She did not listen to it, but ran home and soon forgot the poor frog, who was forced to go back into his well again. So here, entering the story, is this figure of the frog. A frog is many things, but probably not much of a bed companion. And we can see that the princess, you know, she's used to being in the kingdom and and things going her way. And in that sense, she's she doesn't really anticipate anything not going her way. So the princess in this in this story at this point is, let's say, the entitled princess archetype, where anything she wants she can get that there's no end to her desires and there's no end to those desires being met and that is her reality and when she loses the golden ball it's it's a shock to her but then here's this frog and the frog's willing to bring the golden ball up for her and and in her her phase of development that she's in at that point in that narcissistic phase she's not too concerned about whatever this frog says as she says you know, how, how the silly frog does talk. He lives in the water with the other frogs and croaks and can be no companion to any human being. So she's willing to make this agreement, but she's definitely not willing to meet the agreement. She really just wants her golden ball back. And so this is the setup for the story. And we have this frog. The frog wants something from her. Nothing is for free in the frog's world here. It's an interesting symbol, and it's one that I've sat with for a long time, this symbol of the frog. In Jungian terms, maybe we have the animus figure of the princess herself. Maybe that's how it would be read in uh, in Jungian terms as, as one of the guidelines. But thankfully, we're not Jungians on the show, so we can just go wherever the story might take us. But what about this frog? What about the frog as a symbol? Maybe we can go a little bit further and, uh, and a little bit off-piste here to find out what the frog really represents. To me, I see the frog as a as a trickster in the way, as we've just done our series on tricksters, the last three episodes being on Hermes. And we can see in this frog he has access to the underworld, where he's able to retrieve the gold. So that's very hermetic in a sense. It's very, very Hermes-like. Hermes was the god with access to any of the kingdoms on Earth um, and Mount Olympus and the underworld. The only god of the pantheon that had that right to go that had a free pass into all of the different kingdoms um that was just hermes the messenger 
So we can get a sense that there's a there's a messenger element to this frog that he's going to bring together a set of opposites, which is what the trickster often does, and causes a little bit of bit of trouble and a bit of strife and comes from a different angle. So oftentimes when a story is, is stuck somewhere, and this is in our own lives too, when a story is stuck somewhere, we may introduce a trickster figure into our lives and uh, to try to shake things up or... You know, or maybe the gods will inter- will sort of intervene and interfere in our lives with with some trickster energy, just to get the story dreamed on a little bit further. But to get a better sense of what the frog represents, I'm I'm going to read something here from Tom Robbins, who clearly had quite a lot to say about frogs. the The book that I'll be reading from today is his book Half a Sleeping Frog Pajamas. And there's a character in that story called Larry Diamond, who's one of these also quite trickstery and uh, and genius types. One of these ones that is that has been to Timbuktu and he's figured it all out. and And he's talking at this point to a a crowd of people that have gotten together to try to figure out where all the frogs are gone. So the the actual the topic of the convention that he's at is on the disappearing frogs. Uh, obviously looking to climate change and different things and uh, he stands up and gives his own take on things and I'll, I'll jump into the middle here as you erudite people well know the word amphibian comes from the Greek amphi and bios meaning to live a double life this refers needless to say to an ability to live both in water and on land in that regard Amphibians are the most adaptable creatures in the world, the ones, ironically, best suited for residence here. But as those of you who've read spy stories or had extramarital affairs are aware, a double life implies a clandestine life, a life of secret behaviours. Now, a frog is a little dumb animal with a poot-sized brain. It probably isn't the custodian of a hell of a lot of covert information. No, indeed. But rather than possessing secrets, suppose a frog is a secret, a secret link. The amphibian is the bridge between the terrestrial and the aquatic. I invite you to consider that it may also be a bridge between our water planet and the largely arid galaxy. A bridge between Earth and the stars. A bridge, most importantly, between the mind of man and the cosmic overmind. And, of course, it's the biological bridge between the fishes, which many identify with Jesus Christ, and the reptiles, which many identify with Satan. So that's Larry Diamond enlightening us on a bit more about the frog as an archetype. And, of course, it's a character associated with transformation as the process from tadpole into frog suggests and perhaps it's a an extra powerful symbol for our own evolution from sperm to egg to to fetus to human as well it perhaps reminds us of our life in the waters both in the sense of in the womb and in the waters of our evolution so there's this frog and i think we'll see as the story goes on why um, a hermetic trickster figure, a mercurial figure like the frog who's able to be in both worlds should enter this story and 
what his role might be in the transformation of the characters. So let's go on to the next part here. The next day, when she had seated herself at table with the king and all the courtiers, and was eating from her little golden plate, something came creeping, splish-splash, splish-splash, up the marble staircase. And when it had got to the top, it knocked at the door and cried, Princess, youngest princess, open the door for me. She ran to see who was outside, but when she opened the door, there sat the frog in front of it. Then she slammed the door in great haste, sat down to dinner again, and was quite frightened. The king saw plainly that her heart was beating violently and said, My child, what are you so afraid of? Is there perchance a giant outside who wants to carry you away? Ah, uh, no, replied she. It is no giant but a disgusting frog. Well, what does a frog want with you? Ah, dear father, yesterday as I was in the forest sitting by the well, playing, my golden ball fell into the water. And because I cried so, the frog brought it out again for me. And because he so insisted, I promised him he should be my companion. But I never thought he would be able to come out of his water. And now he's outside there and wants to come in to me. In the meantime, it knocked a second time and cried, Princess, youngest princess, open the door for me. Do you not know what you said to me yesterday by the cool waters of the fountain? Princess, youngest princess, open the door for me. Then said the king, That which you have promised, you must perform. Go and let him in. So just to pause here, obviously there were going to be consequences to the story. And, um, you know, this word con, con sequences to be with the sequence, right? Like things don't just happen and just stop happening. There's consequences there's a sequence of events from the choices that we make and the choice that she's made by the well has meant that this frog has got himself an idea that he can come into the palace that he can come in and uh and join in in palace life whereas before this he's only really been in the well as far as we know that is his abode in a way that is his home and so now, with this agreement, he's made his way up to the palace. And this is the first point where the king... Remember, the king is the this princess's father, so has that authoritative father-daughter rela relationship. But also, as a king, is the father or patriarch of the land as well. So we can get this sense of this figure, the king, as not just being a, a, a father to the princess, but also being some kind of authority over the rules of the land. So we have him saying, and and uh, we can understand it, that if you promise something out in the world, you have to perform that promise. You can't just go making agreements and not sticking to them. So he's, he's teaching the princess a lesson here. So let's go on with that. She went and opened the door. And the frog hopped in and followed her step by step to her chair. There he sat and cried, Lift me up beside you. She delayed until at last the king commanded her to do it. When the frog was once again on the chair, he wanted to be on the table. And when he was on the table, he said, Now push your little golden plate nearer to me that we may eat together. She did this 
but it was easy to see that she did not do it willingly. The frog enjoyed what he ate, but almost every mouthful she took choked her. At length he said, I have eaten and am satisfied. Now I am tired. Carry me into your little room and make your little silken bed ready, and we will both lie down and go to sleep. The king's daughter began to cry, for she was afraid of the cold frog, which she did not like to touch, and which was now to sleep in a pretty clean little bed. But the king grew angry and said, He who helped you when you were in trouble ought not to be despised by you afterwards. So she took hold of the frog with two fingers and carried him upstairs and put him in a corner. So here we have the story turning to what I consider to be quite a dark scenario when we put it into real life. There's that sense at the beginning where you can see that the king is trying to teach the lesson that there are rules in this land, there are, there are laws to abide by, and the citizens of the land need to abide by them, and the princess needs to abide by them too. And so you can't just go making agreements in the world and not stick to them, and that is a very apt and fundamental rule. And, and that, in astrological terms, we put to the god Saturn, we must follow through with our agreements, right? So so that's the initial viewpoint, I suppose, of the king in this. And, and for me, it's easy to see that viewpoint. But then from the princess, she's disgusted by this frog. She doesn't want the frog to come into the palace. And because the king has said she must, then the frog enters the palace. So this is that moment where the frog crosses a boundary, fro- crosses one of the princess's boundaries. And then slowly, then it's on the floor, and then it's on the chair, and then it's on the table. Once it gets to the table, it wants to eat the food. And we can see that the princess, you know, as as the story tells us, um, she didn't do it willingly. She's not feeling good about this. As the frog starts to eat off of her golden plate, it says that almost every mouthful she took choked her. So she's feeling that real sense of disgust it's it's something that she really doesn't feel good about now at this point we're getting we're looking towards the king and wondering well how long is this going to go on and we take it into the world we've got this this boundary cross of this boundary stepper that is now in this um, little girl's life and where where can the boundary be made but we come back to the frog and, and he says, well, I'm tired now, let's go upstairs right in front of the king. And we might imagine if we're fathers ourselves or parents that we wouldn't at that point, you know, maybe the lesson has been learned and delivered and that perhaps is it. But this particular king, from what I feel about the story, is is symbolic of a a rigid rule system like there's no nuance here there's no his his rules are completely from the head um completely from the mind and not connected to the heart and this is the dilemma in astrology between the sun which is leo ruled and saturn which rules both capricorn and traditionally aquarius so that means that the sun and saturn are natural oppositions to each other so we have this sense of the sun now coming up against the, the sun, which is the heart energy and the um, 
as we said before, the energy of renewal, the energy of play and joy and childlikeness and individuality coming up against the, the rules and the laws of the land. And the rules and laws of the land are, are in this sense, very um, stuck and rigid in that there's no, there's no way around them. It's like, no, you've made this agreement, so you have to go through with it. Even at this point, if we really take in the reality of the situation here is that it's this king's youngest daughter that he's willing to send upstairs with the frog. And we try to sort of allow ourselves to go into the mythological thinking of what is this frog here? What is this king condoning to happen in the in the story and therefore in this world that we're in here? So then... As we said, she took hold of the frog with two fingers, carried him upstairs, and put him in a corner. But when she was in bed, he crept to her and said, I am tired. I want to sleep as well as you. Lift me up, or I will tell your father. And then she was terribly angry, and took him up and threw him with all her might against the wall. Now you will be quiet, you odious frog, said she. But when he fell down, he was no frog, but a king's son, with beautiful, kind eyes. And it came to pass that, with her father's consent, he became her dear companion and husband. He told her how he had been bewitched by a wicked witch, and how no one could have delivered him from the well but herself, and that tomorrow they would go together into his kingdom. Then they went to sleep. So here's... At the beginning of the story, we have this princess that, and her whole identity is, is in relationship to the king. And she's lost her golden ball. At the very beginning of the story, she has her golden ball and then she's lost her golden ball. And even though she gets it back from the bottom of the well because of the frog giving it to her, she's really lost it in the sense that life is not going so well for her anymore. It's um, it's not looking good. She's been forced into this situation with this frog. And, you know, she's stuck there. She doesn't know what to do. And she has to just keep going one, one after the other past her own boundaries and her own limits. And they keep getting, getting crossed and crossed and crossed. But then this very magical moment, this very beautiful moment when she gets in touch with anger in her own soul... And that anger brings her to, to say enough, enough of this situation. I don't care anymore, right? I don't care what this frog is, is trying to convince me of. I don't care what my dad says, what the king says, what the rules of the land are. I'm just, so it's that rebellious energy, right? In, in um, astrological terms, it's that Uranian energy. It's that ability to, to actually go against the tide or go against the rules of the land and say, like, no, I'm going to stand up for what I believe in here and what's right. And come what may, I don't care what the what the um, consequences are. And so get a sense of that in inside of yourself and, and, and being that character and everything that she's going up against. You know, one of the things that I'm really drawn to in this story is that so many fairy tales have magical helpers of some kind. It could be an animal helper or a guardian angel or 
you know something from the from some other world comes to help the, the main character and in this story we have nobody that comes to help the princess and she really has to just come up against this situation come up closer and closer to this edge until something inside of herself is found and discovered some kind of courage some kind of power and she finds it through anger and I first came across this story actually even though I probably read it as a child and you know maybe I a lot of people I talked to about this story they know oh yeah I remember the golden ball I remember this and that um but there isn't necessarily a memory of this part of the story of uh, the throwing the frog against the wall. And I think that's because what we have in our minds these days is the kiss, the kissing the frog. And, you know, this is, this is pretty fascinating how we went from this, this movement into anger and into this connecting with like enough the the energy of enough i'm not taking this anymore um to the kiss or the the act of kindness or compassion or whatever it might be in that other side of the story you can hear how different the story is once it's a kiss i wanted to talk a bit about how that changed uh not only in the in the collection of stories but also in our consciousness Right, because if the story changes, then it's also a reflection of our consciousness changing, just as like our interaction with these stories and, their, and the story's interaction with us sort of forms consciousness in the first place. The stories we tell is a formation of our own consciousness on a collective level, which archetypally, astrologically, is the is the element of Aquarius, where we um, where we have we have paradigms forming in the realm of Aquarius and we break those paradigms sometimes, but then they form again. So as we know about the, the Brothers Grimm, they didn't write these fairy tales, they collected them. Right? They collected them from the local peasants in the German countryside um, by putting out ads in the newspaper and then people would answer those ads and it was of, often sort of old ladies, the crone figures that would come and tell them these stories you know these these kind of crone wisdom keepers therefore they're not they're not written right we 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 can't consider them to be written as such as as more like they evolve through the countryside and it's a bit of a a thing now because you know it's hard for a story to evolve now it, it gets pulled into um or it, or it sort of can't evolve in in the modern world because uh, it's always meeting the the demands of the audience and that's what that's what hollywood and and what have you and disney uh, are trying to tell the story that the that people want to hear whereas the peasants in the german countryside are telling the stories that the people need to hear their medicine stories right and so the first collection was published in 1812 um, and they went on to make seven editions of the tales and in the second edition they included another very similar story called The Frog Prince, where the frog sleeps at the foot of the princess's bed for two nights, and then on the third night he hops under the pillow, and the next morning is revealed as a prince. Now, when this story was translated into English by Ed Edgar Taylor in the early 1820s, he didn't name it The Frog King, he named it The Frog Prince, and uh, it had the start of the Grimm's Frog King, and the ending of the Grimm's Frog Prince. So he sort of like morphed these into each other. 
so we start off with a golden ball and everything, but in the end, the frog sleeps under the pillow, and that's how he transforms, which means the princess in that story is basically, you know, completely passive, has no agency in the story at all. And we could, you know, come up with a few conclusions about that. We could say that this Edgar Taylor fellow was, you know, a, a member of the patriarch and wanting to make women passive and all these kinds of things. But I think more realistically is that he probably looked at it as like, oh, we don't want to have the message to little girls of, um, you know, violence, something like that. So some logical sense of what he might think of, yeah, we don't, you know, we can't, you can just imagine him thinking like, hmm, you know, that might be all good, well and good for the Germans, but not for the English. The English is, the English uh, reader is going to, got to not accept perhaps not accept the notion of a heroine throwing a frog against the wall and so we'll go for something nicer cleaner and perhaps more english (laughs) and so you know that there's the evolution into english and somewhere towards the end of the 20th century though it's unclear where i've been looking around to try to find exactly where um, this first happens but i can't seem to find it Um, but a kiss enters the story and, you know, now if I ask a client if they know the story of the Frog King or the Frog Prince, they'll, if they do, if they have heard of it, which most people have heard of it, just like we've all heard of Cinderella and these other things and Snow White, uh, it'd be like, oh, what happens in that story? And they'll say, oh, it's the one where the frog, uh, where the princess kisses the frog. And so the message ends up being you have to kiss a lot of frogs before you find your prince. And that is one of the great toxic lines, one of the great toxic understandings, one of the misunder- one of the great misunderstandings of our day. This story that in its origin had so, such potency and such a powerful message around sovereignty and the power of anger and boundary setting and not putting up with creepy, creepy, creepy behavior. And it subtly shifts and, it, and then it shifts to pretty much a 180 degree message. And this rebellious act of the princess against the status quo of her time is swallowed up by the status quo itself. And the message becomes lost in translation. And the story doesn't actually end there. So we'll go from this point. When, the, when he fell down, he was no frog but a king's son with beautiful kind eyes. And it came to pass that With her father's consent, he became her dear companion and husband. And he told her he'd been bewitched by a wicked witch and how no one could have delivered him from the well but herself, and that tomorrow they would go together into his kingdom. Then they went to sleep, and the next morning when the sun awoke them, a carriage came driving up with eight white horses, which had white ostrich feathers on their heads, and were harnessed with golden chains, and behind stood the young king's servant, faithful Henry. Faithful Henry had been so unhappy when his master was changed into a frog that he had caused three iron bands to be laid around his heart, lest it should burst with grief and sadness. The carriage was to conduct the young king into his kingdom. Faithful Henry helped them both in and placed himself behind again and was full of joy because of this deliverance. And when they had driven a part of the way, the king's son heard a cracking behind him as if something had broken. So he turned around and cried, Henry, the carriage is breaking. 
No, master, it is not the carriage. It is a band from my heart which was put there in my great pain when you were a frog and imprisoned in the well. Again and once again, while they were on their way, something cracked, and each time the king's son thought the carriage was breaking, but it was only the bands which were springing from the heart of faithful Henry, because his master was set free and was happy. Now this last part of the story tends to be dropped out in modern tellings. Sometimes even in a Grimm Brothers collection, they'll just stop it where where the prince is revealed and the story's done there and and there's a sense of like, well, why why add this last little part? It doesn't really mean anything. It's not part of the central story. But I actually believe that this this part of the story is the whole the whole story told again but different images. So if we think at the beginning we have this tension between the princess and the king. And we can imagine that in this kingdom the laws of the land have have, have lost touch with the innocence and the purity and the beauty of youth. And so it's become crusty and old and there's really no connection. In fact, at the beginning of our story, the king and the little princess, they're, they're as far away as can be. So it's this symbol of a split between the two. And it's hard to imagine, perhaps at the start of the story, that the two would ever sort of find each other. It's, it's, they're sort of too far away. But they're an archetypal opposition, and as such, they're always... Um, there's always a part of one in the other. There's a sense of of one is going to eventually become the other, if if you could put it that way. And so a split in the archetypal world, it just can't last. Something has to happen. And oftentimes that third figure will be a trickster figure, as we said, the frog, this Hermes figure, who's in both worlds, able to be in the princess world, and able to be in the king's world. And in fact, at the start of the story, he's just in the well, and he's in no worlds. He's just in the well, just in the underworld, right? So he's been, he's in the deep unconscious, and he's been forgotten, this figure. He's, he, you know, it makes me think of these festivals of the trickster, where, where the trickster would be celebrated, you know, in the early days of Saturnalia, um, which was what we now call Christmas, was a time when all of the rules of the land got turned upside down and the master became the slave and the slave a master and they had donkeys in the church and the little girl, oddly enough in our story, right, the little girl would play the role of the priest and instead of getting them to say amen, she would get them to say which is my sound of a donkey. So the whole church in uproarious laughter for these sort of 12 days of Christmas or 12 days of Saturnalia and they would be forgiving debts and sort of renewing um, the vibrancy of of the state or the village or wherever it was. You know, obviously this is going back to all the way through the Middle Ages but began somewhere in Rome, uh, sometime in Rome. And so obviously the church always wanted to stomp this out because they didn't, they didn't want anything to do with this, but... Um, but by stomping it out, you know, eventually the church wins that equation, but by doing that, you forget about this figure of the trickster that's so important as a bringer of renewal, just like the frog as a symbol is, is important of the, of the um, 
is a symbol of uh, the bringing of renewal. And so who should be in this story but a frog that can actually um, that can actually move the story forward and remember that frogs or <laughs> remember that tricksters are ambivalent there's not there's not a good or badness to them they just want to move the story forward and so in a sense this frog although creepy and disgusting and you know all of these things he ends up building the tension between the king and the princess and I've always found it interesting that the story is called the frog hyphen king the frog king but of course the frog is not a king the frog is, is a king's son the frog is a prince so I've thought a lot about that is, is the king the actual frog is the king in the story the real frog or is this story talking about the frog king alliance where the, the king ultimately takes the frog side all the way through the story it's that's up to our imagination to to answer that but ultimately there's the tension between king and princess and the frog builds that tension and builds that tension and when she has that eureka moment of throwing the frog against the wall the entire thing changes right so the frog changes into a, a, a king's son we don't hear anything about the king anymore apart from that he he gives his consent so he's not a character in the story anymore um, so the king that was crusty and old has been renewed as the king's son and son here being a, a good pun on 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 the sun itself rising again and no longer being so crusty and old so we've got a renewed king the princess has transformed herself as well in that she has has reached down and and found her courage and been thanked by this uh by this frog who's been under a spell from the wicked witch from whenever that witch put that spell on him he's been awoken from the spell because of this princess finding her own sovereignty and her own power again basically finding her golden golden ball again so that's the the energetic this is the medicine part of the story where the spell that is on the frog is broken now the three that we started with end up being those two and then faithful henry so faithful henry is another hermes like figure in that he drives a carriage from one kingdom to another so he's a messenger god right he's a so he's in the role of the in-between the in-between worlds as well just like the frog is but he's giving this this whole story again but in sim, in a different symbolic format so we have the iron which is a, a saturn element here the iron and a, these iron bands these blocks around the heart so that the iron bands are holding the heart in because of his grief of losing the prince right so we can feel that the the that sense of iron bands around the chest and it's all he could think to do and we talked a little while ago about the sun saturn and there is going to be sun saturn opposition in the sky uh, at the next full moon and we have saturn blocking the sun in this way in this story right the iron ba iron bands are stopping the heart from feeling the grief but also from feeling the joy and and so we're in this deep dark depressed state the golden ball that was down the well is now the same symbol as being used in iron henry because his heart is also down the well it's trapped it's it's locked in by these iron bands 
And so when he sees the prince and the princess together and there's happiness and there's a renewal in the kingdom, there's a renewal of energy and the spell has been broken, he now feels that it's, it's safe enough for him to feel the, the, his own heart again and that the joy can come back and, and celebration can come back. And, you know, that again is the role of the trickster to, to celebrate and to feel that joy and to feel that presence and to feel that heartfulness. And so bang, 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 all three of those uh, bands break and the sense of the heart um, being found again in this new kingdom, right? The, the princess and the prince, they leave behind that kingdom. There's nothing, there's nothing to do there anymore. It's over there. There's, there's nothing happening. That whole thing is, is over and they go towards the new kingdom. But this time there's a sense of being able to be more integrated and being able to keep that heart energy um, as, they, as they build towards this new, uh, new paradigm or the new thing that they're going towards. It's a story that I've used many times in my work as a therapist, as a psychotherapist and counsellor. And it'll often be times when my client is having the same basic experience in love and the same thing just keeps on happening. And there's a sense that, like, you know, no matter how nice and compassionate and kind she is, nothing changes. And so I'll explore it in the in the terms of bringing in the Frog King to get a sense of if there's a if there's an underlying understanding uh, in the background consciousness that in order to find one's prince one has to kiss a lot of frogs. So if only I could use enough kindness and compassion, then this person will transform and become the best version of themselves and and really love me. So then by opening up the idea of what the princess really does, symbolically finding that anger inside so that she can feel something again and can actually express something real and not something that's more political or trying to soothe someone else who's angry or soothe someone else that might be treating them poorly. You know, each time that this story lands with a client, because it's not always that it lands, but when it does land, it's like a light goes on in the background it's like a memory actually and that's what i think we lose when we lose the heart of a lot of these stories when they get edited and people who don't understand the medicine in the story edit the story and then pass that on and we're left with these very watered down very sterilized versions it's sort of like what Bayer said last week it's not an assault on the imagination so much it is as it is a sterilization of the imagination so this sort of teaching to not be too radical, to be nice, to be kind, and to just go along with these things in those romantic encounters where you've run into a frog. And I think there's a lot of frogs out there, particularly in this Tinder world, you know, and who knows how many little monsters you're going to meet along the way on, that, on those particular paths. But perhaps just by having the, the sense of, of the message of the Frog King, we can um, we can get in in touch with what's really needed at those times, while staying safe, of course. Yeah, so I've used that that layer a lot in in therapy, and but what I've found over the last few weeks of really going deeper into this story is that it's also symbolic of the individuation process and the becoming of one's true self, and gives us a couple of little nuggets within this story that help us to ponder like what does it take 
to become me, especially in the face of a collective consciousness that, that gets stagnant or stuck. And how do I remain in touch with myself, in touch with my truth in the face of powerful forces trying to make me like everybody else? Right? How do I stay in touch with myself? And that's what Leo season tries to help us with. But I'll also say that, you know, the sun's journey, Saturn is sort of Im- implied in the sun's journey. If the sun's journey is that hero's journey and the, he- and the journey into becoming one's true self, then what would that journey be without coming up against some really good villains, right? Some, some really worthy adversaries. And that's how we have to think about these Saturn figures. You know, we want to be able to come up against those things, just like the sword that sharpens itself against the stone. The way I've been sitting with this story over the last few weeks is to really honor the frog. I think what really helped me to honor the frog is talking to Bayo Kamalafe and him talking about these little monsters and how sometimes a monster is going to have to come in to disrupt the normal order or the way that there's only these two things going back and forth with each other. We need a third thing to come in and it's often in a monstrous form or a trickster form. And so it really helped me to see the frog more symbolically and less as like some creepy sexual predator style of person. So I think there's a layer in which seeing that creepy energy in this story is really helpful. I also think there's a layer at which there's a um, seeing like a king frog alliance where much of the the appalling behavior against women is um, is still to this day very much not challenged by the king or even condoned by the king in the sense of like it's okay the king doesn't mind if all these happen things happen and even somehow enforces it at times so that's another layer to the story but the sole layer is that element of what the sun means in astrology as far as our true selves and the getting back in touch with that truth and that essence that individual sun that is connected to really to god connected to godliness and getting in touch with that in a way that isn't just like this entitled princess at the start, but actually has maturity in it and, uh, and spirit and soul in it and integration and the wisdom of retaining that connection to the divine story. Thanks for listening to On the Soul's Terms. Find us online at onthesoulsterms.com and on Instagram at On The Souls Terms. This podcast is produced in Vancouver, British Columbia, which we would like to acknowledge is on the unceded territories of the Coast Salish peoples, Tsleil-Waututh, Squamish, and Musqueam. Tune in next time for more of the wisdom of stories, approaching what the ancients knew on the Souls Terms.